Welcome to the Grinning Idiot Podcast. Thanks for coming back. I'm your big idiot, Jay Floyd. I'll be your host this afternoon or evening or morning. I don't know when the heck you guys listen to me, but I am going to be introducing you to another really interesting person. Without you even having to leave your home, I'm kind of like an agoraphobic Sherpa at this point. But it just so happens that in my 53 years, I've met some really interesting people, all who seem to have been thrown some challenges that they've gotten through and that have made them bigger, richer people. And um, that's a theme I'm really interested in. You know, another theme that that plays in today's uh, podcast a lot is the theme of family. And it's so stereotypical at this point for people to talk about their families being crazy. I think every family has its uh, its quirks and its flavors that maybe people from the outside don't recognize or wouldn't uh, recognize as normal, at least. Um, it's a theme for me that has always caught my eye. It caught my eye very early on in the in the movies and plays that interested me, and that's probably why, as a screenwriter, when I write stories, very often they're about either family systems or group systems that are basically a large family, like a community. And it's just a, a those dynamics have always been the nature of drama for me, drama and comedy. And tragedy on occasion, and sometimes all together. But family systems have always been very interesting to me. And the one you're going to meet or hear about today, well, it's very unique. Um, you think that you have a family story. Wait till you hear Susan Nazami's. Uh, Susan has been a dear friend of mine for many years. And um, it's funny, I had known this story that she's going to tell us. Um, for most of the time that I've known her. But what's interesting and what long-term friendships have to offer, among other things, is the fact that you get to watch people's stories evolve for them. And you get to watch their stories start to change them or they change in relation to the stories and become more integrated as to who they really are. That's what I believe has happened with Susan, but I'm going to let her tell you. So without further ado... Let's meet Susan Nazami. talk to me about my tragic past. Yes, that is why I've called you here today. Well, Thank fine. you so much, Susan Nazami, for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad that my pain could be of service to you. Oh, good. It's servicing you as well, and that's what we're going to talk about. Okay. Um, I'm your grinning idiot, Jay Floyd. Welcome to my podcast. Why, thank you, Jay. Um, Susan, you have a very interesting family story, family history, and I'm, I'm really grateful for you to you for coming in to share it with us. Um, uh, I've found that on things like this, when things are far enough in the past, we actually can talk about them and have some scope on how they affected us. When we're still in it, eh, not yeah. so much. It's just all drama and pain. Yeah. Not that there's not drama and pain in the story, there certainly is. And by the way, I'm just noticing we have some peanut butter pretzels here. If at any time either of us wants to have <laughs> one, I'm going to say in this podcast, it's okay <laughs> to crunch. It's a crunch happy zone. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> just in case, I just noticed those. Anyway, mm-hmm. hi. Um, Too bad I don't like pretzels, but okay. Oh, no, sorry. See, <laughs> I'm already disappointing. However, if you had candy here. Oh, wait a minute. I have I have almonds. Almonds? Yeah. No, you uh, don't understand me at all. <laughs> um Guys, those of you who don't know Susan, she has several vocations and avocations. Uh, Susan is a film professional executive in the industry working at a studio, which is something she's done forever. Um, she That's how I met her, by the way. Um, she also is a voiceover artist who does audiobooks, um, and she's also a playwright. Uh, she writes screenplays and stage plays, which is sort of going to come up later and be relevant in this story. Um, Susan, where Just were you? Just to correct you for a quick second. That's fine. Uh, I don't write screenplays anymore. I write prose mostly. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, so that's where I am. Well, let me ask you this. Um, <clears throat> where were you born? I was born actually in Tehran, the city of Tehran. How long did you live there? Well, um, the way it worked out is... Uh, my hometown is really the city of Isfahan, which is where my father's family is from. Isfahan is sort of like the artistic capital of uh, Iran. And uh, all it takes is for you to take a trip there and you'll see what I'm talking about because all the streets, buildings, everything looks like a piece of art. Really? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. How do you um, say the name of the town again? Isfahan. Isfahan. Mm-hmm. Just because I want people to be able to Google it. How do you yeah. spell that? I-S-F-A-H-A-N. Okay, interesting. You grew up, but you didn't, well, I mean, how many years did you live Well, there? here's the thing. It was sporadic because my father at the time was a military attache. So we did a lot of traveling to different places. Um um, f- from Asia to the Middle East, India. Because uh, of military concerns? Because uh, because he was stationed there. Okay. Uh, two years here, one year here. So I grew up all over the world. Okay. Um, when his um, uh, tour of duty was over, and he was promoted at that point from a military attache to, I don't know, I guess a colonel or something, uh, we then traveled back to Iran. Um, And there I was there for about, I'd say about three or four years until the revolution broke out and then we had to escape. What was that like? How old were you? Did you know what was happening? Oh, I certainly knew what was happening because um, it was quite vivid. I mean, you know, when people are (laughs) bursting down your door and rushing into your home. It's not subtle. (laughs) It's not very (laughs) subtle. Um, No, I Revolutions are not subtle. That is the main point that I want to make here. (laughs) Exactly. They're not subtle. You know when they're happening. Well, then I guess the podcast is (laughs) over. Thank you and scene. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, I was fully aware of what was going on. There were a lot of frightening things happening within a very short period of time. Uh, The most, I mean, there were a lot of, um, without going into too much detail, there was a lot of... Uh, physical fear of remaining alive, but I think the worst part of it for me um, was actually the things that happened within the constructs of my family, Um, and uh, both my immediate family and my extended family. Because at that time, one of the things that happened was this whole revolution was about... um, a, a religious group of people who had been oppressed for a very long time. They've actually, they had actually been made fun of 
quite frankly. Would I you mean, name them, please? Um, like, for example, let's just take the Ayatollah Khomeini. Yeah. The Ayatollah Khomeini was in exile when all of this stuff was happening. He was living in Paris. There were so many jokes about him. I mean, imagine Trump of today. He's in charge, he's in power, and we're all dumbstruck by the fact that this person. <laughs> okay. She did quote fingers. Yes. I told her just I'm trying to, to be as polite as possible. This human being. <clears throat> this human being is actually in charge and we're sort of helpless at the moment to feel like we can do anything about it, even though comedians joke about him on the television all night long. It was the same sort of situation. You had the Ayatollah who was in exile in Paris. Question. Yes. Is the, is the assignation Ayatollah, is that a religious... Uh, yes. Word? Yes, because Allah means God. So I, I, I'm just so noticing a messenger that for the first God, time right now. Yes. So it is a Ayatollah. religious designation. Yes. Ayah means the sound of God. So a messenger of God. Ayatollah. Okay. Uh, it's an Arabic word. Um, and so when he was in exile and there were these talks about him or... Uh, there were some demonstrations from time to time. Nobody took it very seriously because there were so many jokes about him. I mean, there were rolls of toilet paper with pictures of him squatting over a toilet seat. The revolution started through him organizing from abroad and with the help of certain other countries who shall remain nameless. <laughs> um, he was brought back to Iran. And what they hadn't counted on was that the minute he stepped off the plane, the first words out of his mouth would be, death to America. (laughs) (laughs) Which was sort of ungrateful. (laughs) So he went off script in a major way. Yes, he did. And so what happened is um, those countries, again in quotes, who thought as a result of ousting the Shah and bringing this puppet in, they would have uh, control over the country, um, that all went out the window. Who was your dad aligned with? Uh, well, he wasn't aligned with anyone. He worked in the military. So, so that would his have been under the Shah. So his duty, his service would be to the Shah Absolutely. until Khomeini came in. Absolutely. How did your father explain to your family, we have to go now? Well, that's ne- that never happened. What, uh, what did happen then? <laughs> well, what <laughs> happened is uh, we managed to escape the first time around. Can you go into that a little yeah, bit? I want to so know what my, an escape looks like in this situation. Yeah. So my father found out things were getting really, really bad. And so his priority became to get us out of the country, get us, meaning me, my sister, and my mother, out of the country. And so we were. Uh, I came home from school one day, and all our stuff was packed. And uh, uh, I realized uh, something was going on. Oh, yeah. And so uh, the next thing I knew, we were hiding in a car uh, with, you know, uh, what do you call it, like a, a cloth over us or whatever to hide us. And it took us to an air, airplane hangar where there was a, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, those big planes? Oh, cargo plane. Uh, so we got into a cargo plane. Uh, sitting on the floor next to all these big boxes and whatever, and uh, that's how we actually got out of the country. Where did you go to from there? Well, first we went to Spain. We had a stop in Spain uh, for a few days. We were there. Were you terrified? Um, or because I, you were with your family, you weren't? No, uh, it wasn't. I wasn't terrified. I would have to say I was just in a state of shock. Uh, I mean, the first night that we were in Spain, we were all in this one hotel room, I remember this distinctly, and everybody was asleep, and I got up, 
And you have to understand, at the time I was, um, what was I, eight, nine years old, something like that, I got up and I left the hotel in the dead of night. It was like around one or two in the morning mm -hmm. and the streets were empty and I just kept walking and walking and walking just in a state of discombobulation, just not knowing what was going alone. on. Alone. In Spain. In Spain. <laughs> and um, I remember hearing the sound of music as I was walking. You don't mean Julie Andrews. <clears throat> no, I mean like flamenco music. <laughs> um, Julie Andrews would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> just, for some reason, I just saw her spinning through your story. And I was like, what the hell are you doing here? Julie, get out of here. Poor this is about you for once. <laughs> Poor Julie. She doesn't deserve this. No, she doesn't. So you're um, wandering the streets of Spain I'm as, the streets at eight of, years old. Yeah, and I hear this music uh, coming from somewhere, and it feels like it's coming from underground. And I looked, and there was this light coming from this opening. Uh, which turned out to be a spiral staircase that went to this place under this building. Oh, I'm assuming at eight you weren't on mushrooms because this <laughs> sounds a lot like you were on mushrooms. Believe me, I wish. <laughs> okay. No, but I am now. <laughs> so uh, I went downstairs and there was a bar and people were drinking and dancing and clapping and there was music. and. What Spanish city was this? Uh, this is... Uh, Madrid. 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 Okay. And so um, so I spent, I don't know how long there. Um, they were all looking at me like, what is this little girl doing here? <laughs> and at one point, I was asked on the stage oh. to dance. Okay. Oh which my God. I know. It was. It, no one said, Where's your family? <laughs> no one said, said anything. They said, Dance for us. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Spain. Dance this is for us. us, little girl. <laughs> and so uh, I. I was. I just did not know what was happening to me. I thought I was having. A I'm dream. hearing the story years and years later, and I don't know what's happening to that little girl. But um, so well, you, there you go. so did you go home? You so uh, I was there for however long I was there, and eventually um, I I left uh, because I think something in the back of my head said, "Oh, I think I'm going to be in trouble with my dad <laughs> soon." <laughs> And uh, I left, and uh, I somehow found my way back to the hotel. And, of course, there was my father of course. Uh, at the front desk. Um, Can you take a minute crazy. And, and tell me what your father's personality was like? Well, um, my father was very traditionally Persian, which means um, that a very strict. Uh, he had wanted to have a son, let's put it that way. And he had me. So he treated me as though I was his son. Um, any sort of love or affection or praise or anything that I ever got from him would always have to be for things that I had accomplished. Mm. He was not the sort of person who would say, oh, hi, honey. I mean, those kinds of words were not used. Um, I called him sir. Uh, I remember when I was around five years old, when he would come home from work, I would usually jump on his lap up until that point. And at five, I distinctly remember him picking me up, putting me down and saying, young ladies should not be doing this anymore. Wow. And uh, so my, my relationship with my father was very um, uh, loving in the sense that I loved him and I admired him and I put him on a pedestal, of course. But it wasn't physically affectionate and it, uh, it wasn't... Um, necessarily emotionally affectionate. Did he connect, did you see him connecting with anyone in your family on an intimate level, like your mom or your my sister. sister? So your sister, he had a yeah, different relationship with. Yeah, I think with. by the time my sister was born, because my sister is seven years younger than me, um, she was the ultimate little girl, and he treated her like a little girl. And she flirted with him like a little girl does with her daddy. And so they had that kind of a bond. So 
you ended up in the United States, mm-hmm. and was that was the first? Where did you first land here? Was it in Los Angeles? <clears throat> no, it was in New York City. It was in New York um, City. Yeah, okay. we had some um, j- uh, um, one couple who were a distant relative who allowed us to stay there until we got our stuff together and we were able to come to Los Angeles because we also had some family in Los Angeles. And you were having to arrive here because you would be killed there. Um, well, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we uh, we in those few days before we escaped, there were many opportunities. There was a moment where um, some guards barged in, and um, you know, with rifles and everything. There were scenes like that that happened. Yeah. That fortunately, knock on wood, didn't and your dad come to in this state of flux in the in the yeah. governmental or institutional state of flux that the country was in, your dad was in grave danger. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So you ended up. In Los Angeles, at some point, mm-hmm. okay, not you, that much later. So we okay. were in New York City just maybe a couple of months, All right. and then we came to Los Angeles. And you started a life here. Yes. Yeah. Then what happened with your dad? Tell us about that. Well, I was put, ironically enough, uh, the only school that would take me at the time was this Catholic boarding school in Pasadena, in Alhambra, called Ramona Convent. Uh, <laughs> Wait, you were in a convent? Yes. Um, well, I, I don't know if that's actually, it was actually a convent. I think at one point it was a convent. By the time I was there, it was just filled with um, young girls from uh, families of uh, great wealth who were sent there for a really good education, basically. Okay, this brings us back to Julie Andrews, and I don't know why <laughs> this keeps happening. But anyway, so you... Listen, we can always talk about the Julie Andrews story, if you like, <laughs> instead of mine. <laughs> It seems to be more interesting to you. You're like, you know, I went and I was... Uh, t- never take an interview with your gay friend, because no matter what, it'll either go back to Julie or Bette or Barbara every time. Um, I'm not singing, okay? Like, uh, actually, you sing really well. But I'm not singing uh, That's what you think. We aren't done. When did your father choose to go back and why? Yeah. Um, I noticed... Um, so I was at the convent all week long, and on weekends I would be allowed... To go back, you know, by that point, my father had procured a small apartment for us, which was in itself very bizarre coming from the background, the, the wealthy background that we had come from. Um, but anyway, I, I didn't care about any of that stuff. I was just happy that we were all alive. And so on the weekends, I would go to um, uh, uh, this apartment where my mother, my sister and father were staying. And I I started noticing that he was becoming more and more withdrawn. Uh, The first thing I noticed about him was the way he would dress, uh, because he was always immaculately dressed, and usually in some sort of military uniform. And all even of, still here? Um, not here, but you know that was my memory of him. Oh, okay. Um, uh, so, because even when we would go to gatherings and parties uh, back in Iran, the way he would dress had some kind of a military element to it. Um, there was some sort it of was pin, a style or that appealed to him. yeah, it was a, a the, the hat, the pin, something. It was his identity. Yeah, absolutely, completely his identity. So, um, all of a sudden, he's dressing in these like big shirts that are like comfortable to wear around the house, which I had never seen before, and just his general manner became more and more withdrawn, um, not too much in conversation, um, didn't see him around the dining room table as much. And you um, didn't have the kind of family structure that allowed anyone to say, what's going on with you? No, 
uh, I mean, I'm sure he and my mother had their discussions, but that was nothing that he would ever discuss with his children, for example. Um, First of all, um, in my um, culture, this kind of stuff is none of the kids' business. Do you know oh, what okay. I mean? Right. It's like, we'll make the decision, and then you'll just follow. Oh, that's a, we have a version of that here, yeah, too. Yeah, there you go. So um, so the next thing I knew was, uh, I think we were here, if I'm remembering this correctly, I think he was here anywhere between six months to a year. And then one day when I was supposed to be driven back to the convent, for some reason, he decided to be the one to do the driving. So it was just him and me in the car. And um, <clears throat> we didn't talk at all when we were in the car, but I kind of knew what was happening. Uh, what was I think he was saying goodbye. Uh, I, I had a feeling while we were sitting there in the car, because it was so unusual for him to drive me to school. He never had done it before. And it felt like a goodbye meeting somehow. And we got out of the car. He opened the trunk. He gave me my little suitcase with my stuff in it. And um, um, he then, just out of the blue, uh, said, um, um, all right, well, you know, uh, take care of yourself. And he never said goodbye. He just said, take care of yourself, as though it was a goodbye. And um, I remember being so angry at that moment Mm. um, that, you know, we had gone through all this trouble of getting out alive. And here we were. And it was an opportunity to actually live somehow, uh, no matter how roughly. Um, And your resources, your family resources were tied up in uh, Iran. Well, they took it. They okay. <laughs> tied, tied up, up is a nice way to put it. Yeah, it's a very right. nice way to put it. They just took everything. So, uh, <clears throat> so I went into the school, and um, I thought, well, that's it. Uh, and I was very uh, cold towards him. I didn't hug him. I didn't say goodbye. I was just mute. I took the su- suitcase and I turned my back and I went into the school. Oh my God. And a few days went by, and I was in class one day. And um, uh, one of the teachers came in and asked for me to be released from class. And they took me to the music room, uh, which I used to always, uh, ironically enough, that was the place where I would always sit there alone by myself, being away from all the other children. And, you know, there was a big... It was your meditative space? It or? was my space, yeah. It was, there was a big harp there. There was the big piano, et cetera, and nice comfy cushions and whatever. And so they took me to that particular room, and there was my dad. And, um, and I knew that this was going to be now the final goodbye. So he then proceeded to explain to me that all his life was dedicated to his country and um, that it was all for this particular day. Um, the country was in trouble. And so in his mind, to run at a moment when your country needs you is the ultimate act of cowardice, uh, cowardice and treason, essentially. And so he, this is how he explained it to me. <clears throat> now, I want to ask you something. Yeah. Do you recall, because I mean, you were very young, but you were very smart, do you recall at the time thinking uh, your, co- your country is more important than us? Um, I wasn't thinking that particular thought, but I was angry at him because something inside of me said, your personal 
even at that age, isn't that amazing? To, you know, they say children don't understand things, but I think children are sometimes more brilliant than adults are. The pervading thought, prevailing thought in my head was your personal identity as General Nazami is more important to you mm. than whether or not I either physically or emotionally survive. That was the thought that it was in my head. Oh, God. <laughs> so as a result, that was another meeting where I was mute <laughs> and I let him do his talking. And when he was done, um, I got up and again, I turned my back to him. I walked to the door and as I was walking, I heard him say, aren't you even going to say goodbye? And so I just turned around and looked at him and I said goodbye. And I left and I closed the door and that was the last time I saw my father. What happened to him? Well, uh, sadly, apparently he was working, I found out after the fact, uh, with a small group of people. They were planning to do some sort of a coup to go back and somehow take the country back and bring the Shah back okay. or whatever they were thinking. Right. Uh, which even Was I, the Shah in exile at this point? Uh, I think, yes. Uh, he would absolutely. have had to have been. Yes, yes. At, at that hiding. point, he was gone already. Right. And um, so what happened was, apparently, one of these individuals uh, was a spy. Uh, one and of the people who lured your dad back? Yes. So he was working for Khomeini's side? Yes. And so the way everybody found out was it, the plan never even got off the ground because the minute they all got on the plane to go back, uh, the guy tried to kill my father right there on the plane. And How did you get this information? I found out years, years and years later, I found out, because my mother made up a lot of stories to you know, protect us from the truth, okay. and uh, they always seemed... Um, implausible to me <laughs> because they were so Disney-like in nature. Okay. Um, years and years later, somebody, and I can't remember who called me now, I want to say it was my aunt, uh, and she said, you know, there's this reporter here, this Persian reporter here in the United States, and he wrote a piece about your father um, around that time, about what happened to him, mm -hmm. and uh, I've uh, heard about him on the radio, and um, I want to. I uh, I called the radio station, the Persian radio station, and I got his number. And here's his number if you ever want to get in touch with him. And so I did. I called this gentleman, and um, he fully remembered everything about my father. As a matter of fact, he started crying while I was on the phone, and he said, "Are you actually General Nazami's daughter?" And I said, "Yes," and he burst into tears. And I thought, oh, my. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I never met him in person, but we had a very, very long conversation over the phone where he gave me all these details. So someone tried to kill your father on the plane, and then do you know what happened after well, that? Yeah. Um, what happened is this person pulled a gun and tried to kill my father on the plane, and uh, the uh, pilot freaked out because he said, if you discharge this gun in this plane, we're all going down. Because of, you know, you can't put a hole in a plane. No. <laughs> and so they waited until the plane landed, and they just carted him off to prison right right there and then. So nothing ever came up. 
they carted all of them, you know, all the whole group, group of the whole group. what they would have viewed as conspirators. Absolutely. Like I said, he was put uh, he was in prison for about close to a year. Uh, and the reason they kept putting him on trial, from what I understand, is there were a lot of uh, demonstrations and strikes in the street because of him. Because they, my father's reputation was of a very just man. He wasn't one of the people who opened fire on people when mm-hmm. the demonstrations were happening. Um, and he was uh, very much Known beloved. To be reasonable. Reasonable and beloved, particularly by the university students who were doing um, the majority of a lot of the uprisings as well. And so as a result, they had to put him on these mock trials to make it look like he was, you know, he, he needed to be gotten rid of somehow or he needed to be in prison for life. So they, they vilified him and yes. probably on false yes. terms. And as a matter of fact, if you ever Google his name, the only thing that will show up is this one article that was perpetuated by the regime about him and why he died. Uh, making a justification as to crimes against humanity. And, you know, they put things like that on there to make it look like... I don't know if it's still on Google, but I Googled my father's name once, and that's the only thing that showed up. So back in the States, there's this young woman Mm -hmm. who knows that her father has gone back to Iran, Mm -hmm. is uh, definitely engaged in something... You probably knew that it was something dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, But you didn't know day-to-day what was happening. No, I didn't. How long was it before they murdered him? Uh, about a year. Uh, they put him on 13 different trials. They um, engaged many people that he didn't even know who these people were. They came and testified against him and made up stories. One of them, unfortunately, was um, a cousin of my mother's, uh, this woman who was ultra-religious and who was always sort of a little bit of a pariah in the family because of her really extreme religious beliefs and she used this opportunity to essentially come to the forefront and so she had joined the new regime and she went and made up a whole bunch of stories about him. So they created a fictional character to meet their political needs and then murdered that person who happened to be your father. Exactly. But not your father at all. Exactly. And here's the kicker. Even after all of these trials, they still couldn't execute him like they wanted to execute him. What happened? Because people wouldn't let it happen. Because they kept, people liked him. Yeah, they kept demonstrating. So one day, from what I understand, there was a guy who was very, very famous at the time in Iran during the revolution. He was sort of like the um, executioner, is what they basically called him. He was the one who would um, uh, d- make the decrees, kill this person, kill that person. Mm-hmm. And so he came to the city of Qom, which is where my father was imprisoned. The city of Qom is the religious center of Iran. It's like Mecca to the Persian people. And so he came and he noticed my father was still in prison and he said, why is this man not dead yet? And they said, well, you know, we can't kill him. Every time we do it, people scream. Yeah, exactly. And so he said, I want him dead. Not only do I want him dead, I want you to make an example of him. Oh, Jesus. So, um, uh... Shortly thereafter, my father was dragged out to an executioner site, and apparently they so riddled him with bullets that body parts were flying off his body. And that's how he died eventually. Yeah. You didn't know that as a young person, though. 
Um, no, I found out the details through this reporter. Okay, but that um, was later. That was much later. Yeah, that's about that's I would probably say about a blessing. fifteen years ago. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is sort of a blessing because I, I'm not sure I could have handled no, it at the time no, at all. No, the the news that he was gone was probably enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did yeah. you get that news? What was happening in your life? Well, then? what happened? Here's the most interesting part about the whole thing. So, in order to um, essentially mentally survive, I threw myself into the theater department. Where? Um, this is at uh, Glendale High School, actually. At Glendale High School? High School, Okay. Yeah. And uh, so there, was, um, uh, there were these uh, series of um, competitions, acting competitions, uh, of this whole region, like the L.A. region, which all took place at L.A. Valley College. And uh, I uh, participated, and I won. Uh, among all the students and Hmm. it was like a big deal it was like midnight when the awards were given out and I can't remember who it was who gave out the awards but it was a very famous television star at the moment at that moment who I can't even remember who it was because I was asleep in the auditorium when all this was happening and my teacher woke me up and said get up get up get on stage (laughs) they're giving you an award and I was like what and so I went on stage I got the award and I went back to my chair and I fell asleep oh my god because you were like you were like guys I'm not doing this for the awards don't you know I'm running from my feelings here exactly I'm having other people's feelings not my own because mine are really difficult right now someone murdered my goddamn father exactly and so that night, I was driven home by my teacher, and I walked into the apartment, and my uh, cousin was sitting there waiting for me, and she had been crying. Uh, this is like now around 2, 2.30 in the morning, and I immediately knew. I immediately knew that she, what she was going to tell me, which is, your father is dead. And I remember saying to her, oh my God, they're going to put him in a box now. And the worms, the worms. <laughs> and I kept thinking about how his body was about to be consumed with all these worms. And um, I ran out of the house. I ran out of the house into the middle of the street. And I kept hearing somebody calling after me, but I kept running and running and running. And eventually this gentleman, uh, and this part, quite frankly, I don't know if it actually happened or if I mm-hmm. hallucinated it. No, I have memories like that. Yeah. I have memories where I'm like... <laughs> This may have been a construction, but yeah. it's so real to me that, yeah. oh, well, what's the difference? This gentleman was riding on a bike, and he stopped in front of me, and he said, are you all right? And the only lights available were, like, the street lamp lights, yeah. which for some reason were reflecting onto his face, so I couldn't see his face. His face just looked like this glowing light, yeah. and he just kept asking me if I'm okay, and I wasn't responding. I was just staring at him. And he finally said, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And then he rode complete off. Complete stranger. Complete stranger. And then he rode off on his bike. And then somehow, I don't know how, I made my way back home. And then I fell asleep. So now we're going to hit fast forward a bit to a few years ago mm-hmm. when you started writing a novel yeah. about being this particular general's daughter right. and what you went through. Right. When you look back at that little girl mm-hmm. who was going through that, mm-hmm. do you trust what you remember to be her emotional state? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. I do now. Good. Good. Um, and uh, just a, a little bit of a correction there. <clears throat> when I started to write the book, uh, my intention was actually not to write a book. Um, I had gone through something uh, very difficult 
uh, at that point. I'm a not different talk- unrelated a thing. A different unrelated thing. Uh, it was work-related, actually. Okay. Right. And um, <clears throat> uh, I had a lot of time on my hands. And um, in order to not go mad, <laughs> I started writing. And I started... By the way, um, writers go mad. But anyway, Well, go there on. you go. What is it Ernest Hemingway says? Yeah. Oh, oh, writing is very easy. I just sit in front of a piece of paper and just bleed all over it. And then how did that end? Anyway, <laughs> exactly. literally well, bled thank all you, over Jay. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm a writer, too. I'm allowed to make these suicide jokes. Anyway. So... Um, so what happened is I started writing in a series of vignettes. Um, you read one of them, which I mm-hmm. sent over to you. Uh, and, uh, and I said, oh, my God, you're a writer. And you were like, <laughs> yeah, I've been doing it for years. Where have you been? <laughs> so I just started writing a series of vignettes. And each one of them were like two or three pages long um, about like these little bursts of memory that were coming okay. back to me. You were just capturing the experience, exactly, recapturing it. Exactly, yeah. and, uh, and it was being written in the context of what I was going through emotionally at that moment, which felt to me another kind of betrayal. Pause. The moment when you were going through it or the moment no, in present day? No, the moment in present day. Because okay. what had happened was, just very briefly, uh, I was working at a certain place. The gentleman who was my boss um, uh uh, because he was um, sort of intimidated by my um, abilities. You, when you started stammering there, I was like, <laughs> you're stammering because you used the word gentleman, and I'm not sure that was the <laughs> word you meant to use, but go on. Uh, I'm trying to be as polite as possible. He, um, he, he became sort of intimidated by my abilities, which seemed to have surpassed his at work. And from what it's I so found out... So diplomatic. I know. <laughs> so uh, as I found out later, uh, after the event happened, he had apparently gone behind my back and told the presidents of this company that I no longer wanted to be there. Okay. And so when my contract was up, which was shortly thereafter, they didn't renew it. All right. Because they thought I didn't want to be there. And I only found this all out after the fact because nobody really talked to me about anything. And uh, this was in a really bad time. It was around 2008 when everything was crashing. The economy was in bad shape. There were no jobs. And so I had no prospects. So let me see. So you had an authority figure being a boss in your life who was deciding what your emotional states were and what was best for you. Because it was really best for him. Exactly. And therefore sabotaging your experience or governing your experience. What exactly. does that remind me of? Well, well that's exactly uh, what happened is even though I realize it now. It yeah, I didn't realize it specifically like that at the time. I just felt betrayed. And that feeling of mm. betrayal took me back to that place. Um, and it was so, like, a, like, a, like a song you remember or a smell you remember. It just sort of. Oh, wait a minute. This is like rhyming. Like a sense memory experience. This is rhyming with something. Exactly. Yeah. And so I started to write. Uh, and it's the only thing that kept me sane at that moment because it took me a full five years to get back on my feet. I was just freelancing for five years, working at several different motion picture companies, six months here, nine months there, et cetera, et cetera. I was never really out of work mm-hmm. because work would just keep showing up. Yeah. But um, it just still felt unbalanced to me, you know, and um, precarious. And so as a result... Um, I started writing just to keep my sanity. And as I kept writing these vignettes, they all eventually turned into about close to somewhere around 200 pages Mm -hmm. uh, of little stories one by one. And so uh, I thought, at, at that point, I thought, well, this is now shaping into a book. I might as well 
just turn it into a book now. And perhaps it's not going to be a book in the traditional sense of the way, which is, you know, first act, second act, third act. It's a bunch of vignettes that are put together, but the vignettes feed, one feeds the other, and mm-hmm. it's like a story. And so I, I was working on that, and then what happened was you and I, I think you remember this, about three or four years ago, we went to one of our mutual friend Jerry's little concerts, mm-hmm. and there was... I remember it very well. It was in a church. Yes, it was in a church, and there was Rob, our mutual friend. Who's, Rob Dean. Rob Dean, who's an um, actor, director, writer. He was in my movie. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, he happened to say, while we were you know, exchanging pleasantries, he happened to say that he was looking for something, and I don't know what possessed me, but I said, well, I've written something. Maybe you want to take a look at that. I will have you know, I remember (laughs) this moment, and I remember you two meeting, Mm -hmm. and I knew you would both get along with each other because I know you both, and you're both interesting and and very vibrant people, Um, but watching that conversation start was like watching two magnets just <laughs> slam into each other. That's kind of it, what it And felt so I like. just sort of stepped away. I was like, oh, that's clearly meant to be, so I'm going to be over here. Yeah, it was very strange because I don't know what possessed me to say that because um, the, what I had been working on was a book, which is nowhere near anything he was looking for. Logically, he was looking for a play to put up or something like that. And he said, well, why don't you just send it to me? So I said, okay. And uh, I think a couple of days later, I sent him not all... Uh, of the stuff, obviously, I sent him a few vignettes for him to look at, and he contacted me immediately, and he said, "This is a one-woman show." <laughs> and mm-hmm. I thought, "Oh God in heaven, <laughs> what have I gotten myself You're into?" Like, but I'm not only one woman. Well, and also, <laughs> you know, the whole prospect of getting back into acting, uh-huh. uh, which this really isn't. It's not about acting. It's about you know, uh, I'm. Being myself, I'm not playing a character, but still, the whole prospect of standing in a stage in front of a group of people just gave me the willies. <laughs> because to me, you know, a long time ago, I had been an actor and I stopped being an actor because I felt I didn't need it anymore. The whole reason I got into acting was escapism mm-hmm. from my reality, and I had come to. Uh, understand and acknowledge my reality, and I didn't need to be an actor anymore. Well, and with by authoring it, you are actually giving it. Yeah. You're you're bringing it into reality. Yeah. You're you're committing it to reality. Absolutely, actually. absolutely. And also, the kind of acting I used to do was they would always cast me in these very larger than life roles. I can't imagine why. I know, and it, it was just <laughs> I got so tired of somewhere in the first act looking into the audience and finding everybody in a state of tears and thinking, oh my god, I have to do this again tomorrow night. <laughs> I can't. I don't. I mean, I would lose literally. Like, I remember being in this one play, by the end of the second week, I had lost 15 pounds just from nervous and uh, energy and being upset all the time and just feeling like I'm being dragged through the mud (laughs) just so that someone else can come to some sort of insight about their life. And it just wasn't working. And then realizing that basically you're doing it for people who are just on a date. Exactly. Well, actually, that was your kind of thinking. Oh, okay. (laughs) That didn't occur to me. I just couldn't take the pain of performance anymore. No, because it was real. Yeah, and it was theater. So it was very, very difficult. So let me ask you something. 
here's the the thing that really caught my attention earlier when you said mm-hmm. that you started writing this story mm-hmm. to keep your sanity together. Pretty much, yeah. Explain that to me. How does the act of retelling your painful past, how does the act of committing that to an art form mm-hmm. or, or expressing that through an art form, yeah. in your case, prose, yeah. how does that affect you? Does it heal? Does it does it vent? What does it do? It's a combination of venting and healing and gaining insight after oh, okay, okay. as you're writing or after you read what you've just written. Is that the, is that because of the nature of telling the story slowly? Here's what happens uh, for me at least. I'll sit in front, I'll know something I want to say. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I'm no, I don't know how I'm going to start. I don't know how I'm going to end it or anything. Mm-hmm. I'll just be staring at a blank screen for a long, long time, sometimes for days, okay. hour after hour after hour. And then um, usually I'll get really frustrated because I'll think, or, or I'll try to write something, I'll step away, look at it, go, oh, this is garbage, and delete the whole thing. <laughs> and um, usually it, try, it starts with me trying to be pithy somehow. Mm-hmm. And it always ends with me being really heartfelt uh, and getting rid of the pith. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's where I always go wrong because I, I want to be so clever. And then the minute I throw the cleverness out the window, the reality of the thing actually starts to settle in. Okay. And at that moment, it usually starts with a word or a line that keeps going through my head. And it, it could be the first line or some, uh, this is a line that could happen in the middle somewhere. But it's the thing that is the heart of whatever it is I'm trying to write. And I recognize it immediately. Could you... You know, look back at the, the. I'm thinking of this story in terms of two times where it was emotionally raw and terrifying for you, and that would be uh, the one time was when your father left, mm-hmm. um, and you were very young, and then uh, a little later, um, knowing that he was gone and may not come home, and then finding out he wasn't coming home. Yeah. Um, d- do you see this artistic expression? going back and going through that as clarifying or what what does it do for you as an artist? Well, I'll tell you something. It had nothing to do with those two things that you just mentioned. Okay. That's what why happened, I asked the question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What happened, the moment that everything really became clear to me and I was devastated was, I mean, there was a lot of pain, obviously, associated all the way along, but the moment of devastation and true understanding happened only a few years ago. Hmm. I happened to be at my grandmother's house, uh, and uh, some of my family was there, including my uncle. Uh, And I don't know why, but out of the blue, I just suddenly asked my uncle, well, you know, why did my father do what he did anyway? I mean, you all keep saying, well, he anticipated this or he anticipated that. But, you know, even as a child, I was intelligent enough to know that this was a suicide mission. So he must have known on some level that he wasn't going to come back. If you knew it, he knew it. Exactly. So my father said, oh, yeah, I I talked to your father about that before he left. Your uncle? My uncle said that. I talked to your father about that. And I said, oh, really? I mean, what did he think was going to happen to us, to his family? And he said, well, that was never a consideration. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he had something he needed to do. You were not part of the equation. How'd that feel? 
<laughs> well, I I was just dumbstruck. And what's what, what was so devastating to me was that somewhere in the back of my head, I already knew that. I'm remembering immediately the angry little girl you described being dropped off at school when he wasn't saying, I'm leaving, but you knew he was leaving well, and you remember, were furious. Yeah. It reminds me of that exactly. Yeah, remember the you thought knew. that I had at that time was... Your ego and your vision of yourself is more important to you than we are. That was the thought in my head as a child. But I kept dismissing it because I thought you're looking at this from your point of view. You're not looking at it in terms of his reality. But when my uncle said that to me, I realized what I had thought was the truth. The man, what he was saying to me was, my life is about something other than you. Mm. And, um, And at that moment that my uncle said that to me, I was completely crushed and devastated because I finally had to face the actual blunt, without excuses, truth about what happened. And then all these feelings came rushing about how the role that I had to play in his life, the fact that he never accepted me as his daughter, that I was a son to him, and that I was just sort of, you know, his briefcase. You know what I mean? This briefcase that he picked up and put it down over here or put it down over there, depending on how he felt at any given time. I mean, I'm sure on some level he loved me. I mean, I was his daughter, but I was I was a function. I wasn't a real human being you know, a three-dimensional human being to him. Is turning this experience into a piece of art, into a piece of drama, is it transforming your ownership of it? Yeah. Um, well, it, it, it's what's what it's doing is uh, it's going a long way to healing me in a very ugly way. <laughs> um, because once you start thinking about these things, not from your point of view or your feelings. Once you start just writing them You're down, yeah, once you start narrating it as pieces of fact, and then you look at it and you read it, you come to a, a very clear understanding of things. I mean, there's no room for interpretation anymore. No. <clears throat> it's just, he did this, I did that, he did this, I did that, um, this happened, that happened, and it's now... A living, breathing thing that you can actually look at and go, okay, that is actually the story of what actually happened. Sure. There's no fiction here anymore. There's no feelings associated with it, the writing of it, uh, and it's it's just now what it is. And as a result of that, once you do that by nature, you start healing because you're not living in some fantasy world anymore. Sure, sure. You know? Before we wrap it up, I want to ask you a, a question that I've been asking everybody I've been talking to about you know, getting through difficulties like this. Well, not like this. Yours is sort of unique. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> but, a little over the but, top. <laughs> but it is a little dramatic. But getting through um, that, would you trade it? Uh, for an easier life, you mean? I don't know if it'd be easier or not, but this is your story. Do you feel like, I wish I had had a different one? Or do you feel like, I'm glad I have the one you that know, I have? You know, honestly speaking, where I am now, mm-hmm. I would have to say, no, I wouldn't trade it. Because the fullness of the kind of life I have now, emotionally, intellectually, the people who are in my life, including you, um, that would not have happened 
if I had not gone through the kind of life structure that I went through. Um, especially with someone with my background. I mean, the sort of people, you know, my father was hanging out were, with were, you know, ambassadors and politicians and, you know, the Shah and, you know, things like that. Uh, there, there was no room to have, like, a real life like ordinary people have. It would have been a very constructed existence. And so as a result, now I can say sitting here with you after all these years, I can say, yes, absolutely. It was totally worth it. But if you had asked me this even five years ago, mm. I don't know what I would have said to you. I would have said, no, I wish none of it would have ever happened because the pain of daily life, of just constantly being this person <clears throat> who is so uh, skin sensitive almost. I am incredibly empathetic as a result of all of this. Um, uh, uh, so much so that a lot of times it actually gets in the way of my job, my daily job, mm. because I'm so trying to help whoever it is I'm dealing with get over whatever hump it is they're trying to get over that I forget, look, your job is to work for this company. You're not here to heal everybody that comes your way. So, um, or, but so, I am, I might argue with that. Yeah. Well, well, well there you go. But it, it does get in the way sometimes because, you know, it's, um, it's difficult and it's painful and, you know, people can't help but betray you because of their own, you know, shortcomings or misgivings about any particular thing. And, uh, so it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but, um, I ha honestly speaking, sitting here in front of you talking right now, I would have to say, yeah, I mean, I, I like the person I am internally today. Um, I couldn't say this five years ago. Even five years ago, I would be in too much pain to understand. Mm. But five years ago, I also hadn't met Jerry Leaders either, who you and... Our counselor, uh, yeah. Yeah, who you introduced me to and who became a surrogate father to when me. When we are so. willing to turn and look at our pain, um, sometimes it requires company, mm -hmm. which is what Jerry was. Yeah. And when we're willing to turn and look at it, I think that it makes it an asset. It makes it a spice in the stew that is us. Yeah. As opposed to being like a rock tied around our leg. Yeah. You know, it, we can start to incorporate it once we aren't afraid of it anymore. That's yeah. been my experience. And that's what I heard in your story as well. Yeah. And Susan Nazami, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing it with us. <laughs> Oh, don't worry. You'll pay for this. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. And that there is the Grinning Idiots podcast for this week. I hope you enjoyed that story as much as I did. And I'm so grateful that I have people who are so emotionally open and willing to come in and, and give us their stories in hopes of adding to our own if you want to follow our podcast, you can do so at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify. If you want to send us an email, go on and do that. Howdy at grinningidiot.com is our email address. That's H-O-W-D-Y at grinningidiot.com. This is your host, Jay Floyd. And until next week, have a good one. <laughs>